app marketers. How's the ROI of your app? At Adjust, we'll help you automate, analyze, and optimize all your marketing campaigns. In one platform, you can identify your best users, protect your campaigns from fraud, and track in-app interactions to monitor retention, LTV, and more. Request your demo at Adjust.com and try our mobile analytics platform for free. Grow now. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That was really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists, with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. I was about to say my own name there. And Sue Nelson, yes, yes, here I am. Hello. Uh, hello. <laughs> this month, four astronauts, including an in-depth and revealing interview with retired NASA astronaut Nicole Stott on her book, what she's learned from her two space flights, and what we can learn too, including the idea of make haste slowly. All will be explained. In the last podcast, we played an interview I'd recorded a while back with Apollo astronaut Charlie Duke to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Apollo 16. And despite, well, should we say some interesting views on science? Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you'll agree he is an all-round great guy, a legendary astronaut. Absolutely. Charlie was also one of the guests at the aim higher gala that was uh, recently held at the science museum in london and the event paid tribute to the mission while also looking ahead to humanity's future on the moon with the artemis program commercial space travel and exploration and how it makes life better on earth basically and it was a very glamorous event to be honest it's much more, more glamorous than most of the space things or science things we go to normally in some seedy back yes, room aren't yeah, they? With, with warm wine and um i felt really underdressed because a lot of people were in ball gowns but i wore a dress made out of a fabric printed with the blueprints for the apollo spacecraft and the uh, saturn V rocket um so and that was a big hit so i sort of felt okay there there was even a red carpet you didn't wear a red carpet. No, no. But uh, but that's where I had to be. A bit like, you know, you see Hollywood stars coming well, Like the Oscars. Yeah, it was. And I felt... There, yeah. were, there, wasn't, there weren't any um, Will... Will I Am or... No. I, I would say George Clooney, I think I'd like. <laughs> Sorry, who were <laughs> you thinking of? I'm trying of? to think of um, the guy who slapped... Oh, Will Smith. Will Smith. <laughs> no, there was no slapping happened on, on the red <laughs> carpet. But it did mean that because I had to sort of stand there with other people beside me, that it was quite a noisy environment because I was there with a, a microphone. So, you know, excuse the background noise, but, you know, when you're at these glamorous events, this is what happens. But I did... Do you want to say glamorous again? Why, what did I say? Well, no, you could say glamorous a lot. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm obviously just... Not used to it, am I? What's another word for glamorous then? What can I say? Smart, posh. Posh, smart, glamorous. You see glamorous. Sorry, I'm sticking with it. With this glamorous (laughs) event, I did manage to grab some pretty good speakers there. My name is Charlie Duke. I was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 16, which was the uh, fifth landing on the moon. 
Now, tonight is an astronaut awards and it's celebrating a a number of different astronauts and different missions and, and people, including yourself. And in terms of the return to the moon now, how do you feel about going back? I would like to go back, but they're not going to call up an 86-year-old to send them up there. I'm very excited about Artemis uh, at the cruiser training. The equipment's being built, and uh, we're going to land near the South Pole with Artemis and start building a moon base, and I'm very excited about that. Are you a great supporter of more independent, privatized spaceflight um, in terms of the direction this has gone away from, well, not away, but not just the big space agencies, but bringing in private companies as well? Uh, I think it's a great step forward, a giant leap forward, as, as Neil Armstrong said. I'm very excited about uh, the commercialization with SpaceX's Blue Origin, uh, Virgin Galactic, all of the ones that are going to take people up, and some orbit, some just up and down. But it'll change the perspective of the humanity, I think, on to see, to see, to see the curvature of the Earth and the blackness of space. It's life-changing, it really is. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. And have you ever been tempted to go up with some of the independent companies like SpaceX or Blue Origin? I would like to, but I've never been invited. So. Consider this a very public invite. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Got a few seconds. I've always, the... always got a few All seconds. Right. Just for ID purposes, if you would give your name and title. Tim Peake, East Astronaut. <laughs> right. And uh, what, what is the sort of uh, importance of tonight's event, apart from obviously being, you know, you're in your bow tie looking like a penguin? <laughs> <laughs> well, tonight is a celebration of space. It's really important to recognize past achievements and talk about the future. And tonight is the uh, celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 16 landing. And so it's really exciting to have Charlie Duke here um, and uh, also to be able to talk about what we're going to be doing in space over the coming years. How do you relate to somebody who went to space you know, over 50 years ago? Do you still find you've got something in common or has, uh, does, is the sort of advance of technology meaningless in that way? Uh, we've got loads in common. Surprisingly, little has changed in some areas. Uh, I mean, Charlie's from a test flying background. I was talking to him um, earlier this evening about you know the aircraft he's flown and what he's enjoyed the most and uh, some of the test flights he's been on and, um, and also about the, the technology that they had on their mission as well with the, uh, the lunar rover and, and, and the kind of um, protocols they had in place for their lunar landing. A lot of those protocols haven't changed either. We've, we've learned from the Apollo missions and we've really brought that that knowledge forward so we're now just applying the knowledge that these pioneers were out there you know doing now obviously you're taking a bit of sabbatical at the moment and you're writing books and going around and giving talks Uh, do you are you leaving the life of an astronaut for good or is the door still open but do you want to return or are you having too much of a good time no, not at all. I'm leaving the door completely open. In fact, I've just got back from Germany. I was there all last week at the European Astronaut Centre interviewing candidates for the new selection process. So that was wonderful to be back at ESA. And, of course, over the last two and a half years, I haven't really been able to get back to ESA as much as I'd like because of the travel restrictions. But now that we can travel, I'm going back there more often. Um, and so very much working closely with East, my ESA colleagues. And if you could do another mission and you had your sort of choice of it what would it be it would be artemis uh, i, I don't have to think too hard about that 
I mean, ISS Low Earth Orbit is wonderful, fantastic experience, the space walking, the, the, you know, the science that we're doing. But as a test pilot, I think you know, Artemis holds a special appeal to be able to go further into space to explore the, the moon. Um, yeah, that holds a real special place in my heart. Well, uh, I'll keep the fingers crossed for you. <laughs> thank you, sure Sue. you don't need my luck. All right, thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Susan Kilrain. I was a space shuttle pilot for STS-83 and STS-94. And how did you take on the mantle from Eileen Collins? Was it a, a good inspiration for you? She's a great inspiration, and, you know, she kind of broke that glass ceiling, and I was able to come in without, you know, even even considering that I was a woman. And what for you would you say was the highlight of your mission? For missions? Me, yeah. Well, we did 16 days of science dedicated to life here on Earth. So we were trying to make this a better world, which is what this event is about, space for a better world. And our mission definitely reflected that. My name is Poppy Northcutt, and I don't really have a title. I, I mean, you know, the reason I'm here is because I'm, I was the first woman in mission control in an operational support role. Uh, I worked on Apollo 8, 10, 11, 12, and 13 in terms of being in the control center. I was a return to Earth specialist, so if you wanted to go, you wanted me working on what you were doing because you did want to get back. And the software that I worked on, developing the abort program, the return to Earth program, that was used in all of the lunar missions to bring the astronauts safely back to the Earth. And, you know, you're, you're well known as well for that wonderful photograph, <laughs> uh, the sort of only woman's right. face in a sea of... of very identical looking men, just yes. purely, I think, because of the way people dressed in those right, days, right, like right. shirt ties. Right. Well, I, I jokingly, they talk about these, these astronauts wearing their astronaut jacket. I said, well, you know, if I wore the mission control costume, it would be a pocket protector, a white shirt, a black tie, and black flags. <laughs> um, I'm Amanda Lee Falkenberg, and I'm composer of the Moon Symphony. I've actually heard part of this uh, Moon Symphony pre-pandemic, small audience, Nicole Stott in there as well, and it was stunningly beautiful. So how has it progressed since then? Because at that point, you were, you know, you were trying to get a wider audience for it. Where are we now? Yeah, so that was like the beta-tested audience back then, and that was at the time I didn't have vocals inserted with the um, libretto. But actually, COVID allowed me to hire 12 voices where they recorded individually in their studios in London, sent us the music, and that way I laid their voices in the symphony whilst we were waiting for the world to open up. And I'm very happy to report that in a month's time we were going to have 60 voices singing um, the choir at Abbey Road Studios with the London voices, so not 12, isolated, but together with 60. And Marin Olsop is our conductor, and she's going to be um, leading the London Symphony Orchestra on the 20th and 21st of May for its for the orchestral professional recording at St. Luke's. That's wonderful. I mean, so in a way, the, you know, this is the funny thing about the pandemic, isn't it? For some people, it's just been a, the most awful period of their lives. And for others, it's been an awakening. And for others, it's actually been a sort of blessing in disguise. And I think, you know... Um, I feel that the, the message and the themes of this symphony absolutely tie into what we've been exposed to as a race, a fragile race. And these are the lyrics, obviously, in their culminating seventh movement, a crowning moment. 
and corona means crown. And um, so all these themes are just playing to the, the message, the planetary message. And so I find that very interesting to see how that is all overlapping into the symphony. A short extract of the Moon's Symphony by composer Amanda Lee Falkenberg, which I'm really looking forward to hearing in its entirety. And um, plus, you also heard Apollo Return to Earth specialist, the legend that is Poppy Northcutt. And fingers crossed, we're going to be getting her in a future podcast so we can talk to her in a bit more depth. You also heard former NASA shuttle astronaut Susan Kilrain, ESA astronaut Tim Peake and Apollo astronaut Charlie Duke. And to be clear, it was a glamorous event. It was a glamorous, <laughs> it was a very... But I, we even had a goodie bag. I've never had a goodie bag, I don't think. And it was more than just a, like a flyer thing. for something, wasn't it? Because often you get a goodie bag and think, oh, it's a goodie bag and it's just like some 20% <laughs> off voucher oh, no. or something. It, you know? it, 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 there were quite cool things in there, like a, a water bottle. I know, you see, I'm easily... Holly, <laughs> Hollywood stars get like $75,000 for a voucher for a trip to an island. And here's me really happy with a water, water bottle. bottle. But it was, it had a water bottle. It had a, a, one little gadget that you... Um, you, you, a light that you can click, clip onto your phone or your laptop when you're doing a Zoom. I just thought it was, well, I'll say yes, I am. So I had a water bottle and a torch. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> well, I loved it. And huge thanks to Jonathan uh, Levy um, for, or Levy, I'm not sure how you pronounce his surname. But um, yeah, that was great. Thank you very much for um, getting us on. And I must tell you about... One of the best moments happened um, early on in that evening in that um, that I didn't recognise a lot of the other journalists. I did. There was somebody from the British Interplanetary Society and I said, oh, yes, I saw him. But the others I didn't and, and they didn't know me either. And, 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 and that's fine. But they had never, quite a few of them, like from big national newspapers, uh, were not the science specialists or space specialists. So they were saying, do you know anything about this? You know, uh, uh, you know? And I said, yes, yes, I, I do specialise in, in this. I said, don't worry, I'll point out who the people are and what they do. And, um, you know, they were grateful. But at the same time, you did see them just thinking, who is this old bird? You know, <laughs> just sort of in this ludicrous Apollo, Apollo group, group. Some, some sort of weird yes, yes. space groupie script in and, behind and you know rope. just as that all of a sudden you heard this this voice go Sue how are you and up comes this glamorous oh I've used that word again it was a glamorous woman she looked amazing in this emerald green satin or silk long dress gave me a great big hug said oh it's great to see you and, I, and then when she went off the uh, journalist from the Daily Telegraph said who was that and I said oh that's um shuttle astronaut Nicole Stott and I saw his face look at me with like oh Slightly. And literally, just as that happened, and the other journalists were all looking at me thinking, oh, hello, another voice, this time a male voice went, hi, Sue. And they all turned around and it was Tim Peake. And I have never felt so, like, seen. <laughs> you would never have that credibility again. I will again. never have that again. No. Ever, ever, ever. But, yeah, what a moment.
This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do get in touch with any thoughts you have on social media, and we will try to be better at it. I've actually done some tweeting this week. Oh, my goodness, that's very unusual. It wasn't like a shopping list or something, was it? You got a mistake. Oh. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And don't forget, there is a vast archive of Space Boffins going back almost 11 years. That's to the very dawn of of podcasting. (laughs) The dawn of podcasting. I feel if, if I could work out, I'm sure there's an echo facility on this. If we could work it out, I could have an echo there. Dawn of podcast. Dawn of time. I just dawn have of this vision. I mean, it's amazing. 11 years. Yeah. I mean, no one knew what a podcast was 11 years ago. No, no. I, I feel now everyone's a, got a wretched podcast. When we were making them, monkeys were banging sticks next to a monolith. Next to, next to iPods. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, that was, that was, was the thing. Now, uh, as you heard from the fact that uh, I mentioned there was this very glamorous, I'm trying to think, elegant, there you go, I can use that, elegantly dressed astronaut Nicole Stott, that she was there too, and yet she didn't feature on that little montage we had uh, earlier with some amazing astronauts in, and there's a reason um, she didn't feature in that, because we wanted a more in-depth conversation with Nicole, because she's always been interested in using space to improve life on Earth, which is what that Aim Higher Gala was all about. And... What we wanted to talk to her about was this That's book. Got, actually, what you should do is do that lovely paper thing, you know, with yeah, well, like a pack to. of cards. I think it's hard. When, it's a hardback book, and I put lots of rip? and I put lots of post its in. To, I put post its in, which are relevant to the questions okay, you're going to hear. No, I can't do it. Hold on. That's it. Is it? There we go. Oh, I like it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this book. <laughs> it's called. Uh, Back to Earth, what life in space taught me about our home planet and our mission to protect it. And uh, Nicole began by explaining why she didn't want to write a traditional astronaut memoir. It took a little time for me to come to where I found myself with Back to Earth. And I'm so thankful that I waited, that I waited a couple years versus rushing to write the book right after retiring from NASA, because I think there was a lot for my own, I don't know, my own maturity even in this post-NASA life of where was I at? What was I wanting to do that felt meaningful to me, that was really leveraging the experience I had and bringing that to life even more and finding even more value in that. And so very thankful for the time it took me to get to the place where the story that comes out and back to earth came to life. That's sort of reflected in the fact that what you've written is very different to the the usual astronaut biography because it does have a message. I and I like the fact that you've got all these um A, you've done journalism in it. You interview colleagues and, and your chapters have all got these nice titles that refer to both living on the space station and being on Earth, like act like everything is local, or one one chapter is called "Never underestimate the power of bugs." <laughs> what what gave you the idea to to do it and break it up into sections like that? First of all, I want to say that in you know in the in the stories that the memoir like books that my colleagues have written, I do really appreciate them because there are little tidbits of all of this stuff that I've captured in their books too. 
right? But for me, it felt like it was a lot more important to reflect on those ways. And that's, that's what we came to was these, this, this idea of the ways of being, the ways of living and working together as an international community on the space station that just seemed so obvious, really, to how we should be doing things down here on Earth. And that's what I think took the time for me is how do I encapsulate, you know, chapter by chapter, these ways that allow me to showcase what does it mean to say that everything is local and to showcase the work that's being done on the station that is representative of that and the science that goes along with that too, because I think there's this wonder that people have about what really is happening on the space station and across the people and the partnerships that are happening up there. But then what is already happening down here on earth? How are our really extraordinary people and organizations already behaving like crewmates, doing what's necessary, um, living in these ways that kind of brings it all, all together. That's what seemed most important to me in, in the lessons of how, how we've been so, peacefully successful on the International Space Station uh, is is through these, you know, seven ways of being. And there's probably more. <laughs> well, but, um, I, I, I did must admit, I did learn quite a, a lot from it. And I think that was from the fact that you did interview people, um, whether it was colleagues like, you know, the astronaut Serena. I have no idea how you pronounce her second name, but it's Serena Chancellor, isn't it? She's got a, a middle name. On and Chancellor, yes. On, yeah, I couldn't yeah. couldn't work out how to pronounce that. And um, the marine scientist, for instance, Rowan Henthorne. Mm -hmm. Did you enjoy that? Because normally you're the one being interviewed. Did oh, you I enjoy loved it. Doing it? <laughs> yeah, I loved it. It was really nice being on the other side. But I also discovered, and God bless you guys, how difficult that is <laughs> to to interview someone and have it feel fresh right? Have it feel uh, like, like I wasn't asking them the same questions um, that they get from everyone else. And, and that is really difficult to do. And, and then to capture who they are, the significance of their message and why I'd even want to include them in the book, because there's a lot of people out there like that, right? That, that I could have included, but these were people that somehow along the way, somewhere I had made some even peripheral connection to that really struck me as important to include. Uh, you have a, a line actually in that uh, chapter that Sue mentioned, never underestimate underestimate the importance of bugs. Uh, you, have, you have a sentence, there's always more to each of us than you can see on the surface. And, and I just wondered, was it helpful being an astronaut talking to other astronauts to kind of break beneath that surface? Because I often find, particularly with NASA astronauts, that it's difficult to break through that kind of buttoned up on message NASA attitude <laughs> and actually reach the real understand the real person the real the real motivations feelings emotions all those sorts of things yeah i th i think that that's probably true in any you know in any line of work where you, you your colleagues um especially where it's, I mean, it's a small community, the NASA astronaut community. Right now, there's what, 40 active astronauts. And I don't know what the total is over time, but 
um, if if they're alive, you you pretty much know them if you're one of them, right? <laughs> and then and then the same is true for our international colleagues. It's it's a relatively small community, and at, at some point along the way, whether it's at a reunion or through training, you're going to have met each other, encountered each other, and I think that just takes that that guard down a little bit. But I think we all are respectful of each other too. And I, and I mean, that's the way I feel with you guys, right? I do tend to let my, myself open up a little bit more with you guys because I, I trust the encounters we've had before, or the, the beautiful work that you've put together oh, as a result well, of our conversations. You. And, and I, you know, I'd hope you agree the friendship that we have now as a result of that. And, Absolutely. and that, I mean, that's the way I feel about, my astronaut colleagues and um, and it does it, it makes it easier to just get down in there and perhaps not have to ask the the higher level questions and just go for the the meat of it if, if that makes sense yeah. uh, well on on that I mean you, you know you obviously talk a lot about the, the cooperation in space the uh, and we you know we've heard this a lot from astronauts this idea of no borders can it be different though in space when you've got for example russia invading ukraine on the ground how, how do you square the two well i think that it, that i mean it's a really difficult question isn't it and i think if we look over the his, history of cooperation in space I, it hasn't to me been, because I think this is because I'm alive and experiencing it as in your face, really, as what's going on right now, right? I mean, I, I have friends, people I consider to be family in, in Russia that I'm, I'm really concerned about them and how this is affecting them. And yet I'm like, what the heck is Russia doing? How in the world was this the choice to make? this day and age, right? But in in the space environment, somehow, you know, even during Cold War, pre-Cold War, you think about the Apollo-Soyuz timeframe, that wasn't all that happy-go-lucky down here on Earth between, <laughs> between <laughs> those countries either. And somehow we had that handshake that really led forward to so many amazing things internationally in space. And I say in space, but I mean between the people down here on Earth as well. And I, I have been really trying hard to imagine what the conversations are like on the space station right now, floating around the dinner table, looking out the window. And uh, all of those people, I'm sure, are, are reflecting and you know, holding each other close and, you know, in a way that we probably can't really imagine or understand down here on Earth. And and like we always did, they're probably trying really hard amongst the six or seven of them to solve the world's problems, you know, to come up with the solutions and figure out a way that they might be able to communicate those to the, you know, the folks in charge back down here on Earth. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, ESA astronaut uh, Matthias Mara you know, has has recently returned from the international space station and 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 that was something that you know was brought up with 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 him and um they agree you know he was talking about how how challenging um the whole situation was for them and and i think it really also reflects that you know you get astronauts always talk about you know when you look down on earth you can't see borders and one of your um chapters is the thin blue line is about that atmosphere being the only border 
that matters. You know, I get goosebumps thinking about it, just closing my eyes and remembering that view from that, re- I mean, really extraordinary vantage point of, wow, we live on a planet. <laughs> I mean, we all know that, right? It seems so simple. It's like, yes, yeah, Nicole, wow, we had, you know, miraculous revelation that you had, you know, in space, but it's huge. I mean, the planet's huge too and small at the same time. But that thought, that um, reality is so powerful, I think. And, and it's why I love the idea of comparing the ways we live and work on a s- space station, this mechanical life support system in space, to our planet. And this total equality in my mind of a thin metal hull of a space station to the thin blue line of our atmosphere that I think people, and I do the same thing. I'm looking out my window right now. And honestly, the blue looks like it goes on forever. And, and I think I say it in the book, I'm just, it's like, oh yeah, we're out there. It just seems like it's just there doing what it's supposed to do for us. And without us having to have any regard. In fact, it's, it's like this veil thin layer, you know, wrapping around all of us. And it, it really and truly is when it comes to borders, the only one that's matters. I mean, it is the only one that is protecting us from that deadly vacuum of space that, that ultimately could be our collective demise. And you use that as well to then go into some of the, the, the VOCs, the volatile organic compounds and, and what we actually put into our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So again, it, there's this environmental theme throughout. Yeah. And it, it was interesting. I, I wasn't really in the beginning after coming up with the, the, just the concept, the structure of, okay, we're going to look at it from, you know, these ways of, of being and how we live and work in this place and how that parallels what we should be doing down here on spaceship earth climate change and the environment weren't necessarily what I would have focused on um, on its own, right? Because to me, the, the, the way we live and work there and the, the, how we behave like crewmates, it's a way for us to solve any of our most challenging problems. Um, but my publisher was, and I very thoughtful about this, my editor, and she's the one who suggested, hey, let's use climate change and the environment as the example (laughs) throughout the book and be able to really point to that in a meaningful way. Um, Because then, you know, in conclusion, you can show how it, it relates to solving any challenging problem. And I'm really thankful for that because it's Mm -hmm. something I'm very passionate about to begin with. uh, And I hope that shows in the book. And, you know, there's a point in the book where I talk about whether you believe in the words climate change or global warming, you can look at what's happening around you. Um, a lot of that information coming to us from our space-based assets and know that we're having an impact on our life support system. And that's the key to me is people just acknowledging the impact that they have individually and collectively on our ability to survive here. And, and hopefully that's where the call to action comes from as well. 
No, I think that's right in in the book. And it's not, you know, because if you just go on about the environment all the time, uh, you know, as someone that I used to present an environment program on World Service, people get bored. I was cancelled. It can be counterproductive. It can be counterproductive. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Absolutely. I think the way, you know, it, it, it's absolutely very well done in the book. Um, can I talk about the scary stuff, though? Um, yeah. so you've got this, um, go slow to go fast is what your chapter's called. But actually, there's a great there's a great paragraph. No freaking out. This is all about you know kind of what you do in an emergency, what we can learn from that. Well, I mean, before we get into that, can you just talk about the the launch on the shuttle? So I remember when I think this might have been when I first interviewed you, and I interviewed Mike Massimino around a similar time. And just how terrifying launching into space is. I, you know, I love the way Mike says it because he's like, doesn't he say something about how you're on the van driving out to the launch pad and you're thinking, man, they're not going to let me off the bus now. You know, even if I wanted to, they're not letting me off the bus now. <laughs> I don't know if terrifying is the word. And maybe that's there's a level of naivety uh, with respect to what terror should be, <laughs> terror should be. But there's certainly respect, right, for what you're about to do. Um, there's an understanding of what it means to, I think, be sitting on the top of uh, of this machine that's going to have 7 million pounds of exploding rocket thrust underneath you. You know, I mean, that's, that's a big deal. It's dangerous. But I think we do all this training, right, to, uh, for all of the things that we think we know can go wrong and how humanly possible to deal with it that there's a comfort level there um, and a trust in the team that's working with you on it. Uh, the, the terror to me, <laughs> and I feel like I can use that word. I always used to just say if the fear or if I was afraid or scared uh, was really for my family watching me do it. And, you know, thinking about my seven-year-old son and my husband and my mom and my sisters watching me strap onto this rocket and witnessing the power that it takes to get out of Earth's gravity hold on us and uh, into space. Um, that was a bit terrifying and fearful for me, just the thought of what they were going through. But the ride is amazing and it is explosive and it is dynamic and uh, you are shaking like you never imagined your body could shake before and feel like three of you are sitting on top of you and and in that first minute and a half uh, off the launch pad, after those solid rocket boosters light, and that's when you really know you're going to space, right? Is, um, yeah, and I'm just rambling on this because it's so exciting. I get like, I know, it's great. great. No, no, We're no, with I'm, you. I'm, I'm there. I'm there. I'm, I'm, the there. Cockpit, I'm, yeah. I'm feeling, I'm shaking. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so, it's so, because you go from this really peaceful just relaxing, you know, you've gotten all cushy in your seat and you're comfortable and uh, you're out there a couple hours before launch. So you have time to get comfortable in your seat and, and relax a little bit. And the crew doesn't really get involved, at least on the space shuttle missions. We didn't get involved till about actively until about 20 minutes before launch. And so, I mean, I remember napping for a little while. And I might looking around at my crewmates doing the same, just really kind of finding that, you know, namaste zone to, <laughs> to be in and uh, being really comfortable. But then you go from just that peaceful, quiet comfort to the 1098 thing, which is where you finally believe you might actually launch to space because you don't believe it until I think that's happening. 
And then at six seconds on the space shuttle, that's when the fuel started flowing from that big orange tank down to the three engines on the back of the orbiter. And I always thought that would be really rough, but it wasn't. It was just like this smooth kind of rumble and you could hear it a little bit, but it wasn't very shaky at that point. And the interesting thing about that was though, is that the engines on the back of the orbiter are at an angle. So when they start spewing out their exhaust, the whole tip of the space shuttle stack, the whole thing all together on the launch pad would tip forward about 10 feet and then it would rotate back and perfectly timed at zero was when the the solid rocket booster, the big white, you know, rockets on the side of the, the shuttle would light. And that's when it all like cut loose. You know, it got really loud. You really started shaking. You knew you were moving super fast. Like, was I ever on a launch pad kind of fast? And you're in your mind. I remember at least thinking, man, I hope we're going in the right direction. (laughs) Because, you know, because there's not in that first minute and a half, there's not a whole lot the crew can do other than monitor, monitor the gauges, talk to the ground. And, you know, on the one hand, it's like, oh, my gosh, there's nothing the crew can do in that first minute and a half if, you know, something went wrong. But also it's like, and I don't know if they purposely did this or not, but it's like, man, that was, it's kind of good to let your body, you know, your mind respond to all of that energy that was happening around you, all that load on your body and, you know, high five your crewmate next to you, big smile coming across your face, a little, you know, woohoo under your breath because you don't want to like yell that out loudly and be unprofessional or anything. But to just as a human acknowledge what's happening to you. And then eight and a half minutes later, you're orbiting the planet. You've gone from zero to 17,500 miles an hour. And if you unstrap, you're going to float. And it's just incredible. And and that, I mean, that's the other, like the question of terror or fear <laughs> was like getting to space and realizing that you'd made it there safely. It's like, wow, okay, I'm here. I'm really here and I'm alive. I'm alive. I made it here alive and now I can float up and look out the window and get to work and and really enjoy it. That's how I I wondered when you're going around the earth at 17 and a half thousand miles per hour, you can actually have a chapter called go slow to go fast when you are traveling that fast. You know, how, how do you mean that? Obviously this, this is, you know, links into what Richard brought up about, um, the priorities as, as well when you're in space, um, that include no freaking out. Yeah, I think it's, it's, um, you know, I think I mentioned in the book too, that we, we pretty freely steal some of the SEAL mottos, the Navy SEAL mottos um, in the astronaut office. And I think that's because there's a lot of military folks in the office who bring those with them. Yeah, I've got one here, actually, I have got the page open. It's um, uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Yeah, sounds Orwellian, doesn't it? (laughs) Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then for the life of me, I can't remember what uh, the emperor or the, um, what was... Make uh, haste slowly. Yes. Make haste slowly. I thought that was so cool. And I mean, that's what the, you know, the SEALs base their, um, you know, slow to go fast thing on and, and what we do as well. And it's like, everything has an appropriate pace for it. Right. And I think we've all had situations in our lives where if we could go back and do it differently, we wouldn't have freaked out as much about something or turn the drama on or, 
um, gotten so wound up that we lost sight of what the problem even was. And I think that's what it's getting at is everything doesn't have to be fast. It just has to be done at the appropriate, <laughs> you know, the, in, in, at its right time and the appropriate speed and, uh, you know, to allow us to digest what's going on, but respond to it effectively, efficiently as well. And uh, when we talk about emergencies, you know, on a space station, uh, the three that we classify as emergencies are fire. You know, you don't want to fire inside of your, you know, contained space. It's um, you can't just open the window and, you know, let it air out or just jump in your spaceship and escape anytime. And, you know, same thing with like a toxic atmosphere. We have really highly concentrated ammonia that's used in some of our systems. And, you know, you don't even want to smell that because then, you know, it's too late. And, you know, getting a hole in your spaceship where all the air starts spewing out like a depressurization. Those are the three biggies. And in any of those situations, it's incredible to see how it almost feels like slow motion the way we respond. You know, you take in the sim signals of what's going on. Uh, you look at the information. Uh, you deal in a very, what we call, um, you know, the, uh, I always forget it. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh, the checklist. Boldface, the boldface checklist. I can't even remember the name of the checklist, let alone I could probably not even remember the checklist themselves <laughs> anymore. But the things that you, you've you trained so much that you just know, okay, I have to immediately do these in response to this alarm that's going off. And that's, I mean, that's the kind of thing that happens around you know, our house too, if things are, are going right or with our children. And, you know, there are things, you know, you just need to immediately do to, to safe the situation. And then to really, you know, then you have the time afterwards to, to just psych it out and figure out what, what really was happening and, and keep it from happening again. And, and in all of that, it, you don't do yourself any favors if you're freaking out. It just doesn't, it doesn't help. And I've been witness to how the opposite just works so beautifully and, uh, and, and it, it allows you to take care of all of your crewmates to make sure that, you know, no one's left behind and to hopefully put yourself in a position where you're not having to deal with that same problem again. You said you've been witness to that. So did something happen during one of your, your missions? Well, I think every mission, yeah, I think every mission has its alarms and bells and whistles going off throughout it. And during my first flight, which was the long duration flight on space station, yeah, I mean, every week or so, some some alarm would be going off. Normally, it was in the middle of the night, you know, God forbid that happened at noon where everybody's just up and around and <laughs> ready to deal with it. It would usually happen at three o'clock in the morning and, uh, you know, some big klaxon alarm going off telling you that it's got indications that air is leaving the station or that there might be smoke or fire or something. And it was just really, really impressive to me to see how everyone would float out of their crew compartment, their little sleep station in the middle of the night, the lights would come on. We'd make sure we had accounted for all of us. And we were six on the station, you know, all six of us get to that place on the station that we were always trained to go to, to respond to any emergency situation, make sure everybody was okay and, and deal with it, communicating with the ground if we could. And, and, and like you should hear, I think, treating everything like it's real until you discover that it's a false alarm. 
That's good. And, you know, thankfully, most of the time it was a false alarm up there. You know, something was going on that caused the alarm to go off, but it wasn't significant in a way that caused us to be under threat ourselves or that that something catastrophic could have happened to the station. You know, very thankful for that. Finally, I did like, I wanted to say how much you stress the importance of mentors and you pay quite a tribute to quite a few women that 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 you've met and 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 some of them you know you 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 interview and that you included i i thought this was so thoughtful a link back to earthbook.com to get in additional information on the people that you'd you'd mentioned i thought that was a brilliant idea but is there any of of the people i know you you shouldn't have a favorite but i bet you do um (laughs) who who would you say has been the most important mentor in your life Oh my gosh. Uh, and, and especially when I think of women, uh, I mean, there's no denying I, my mom for sure. And, uh, I think that a lot of times people think that's the easy answer to give. Um, it's not, it's not an easy answer, but it's the answer for, for me for sure. And it's the obvious and, and I'm so thankful. I mean, I know I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now if I didn't have, a mom who was willing to perhaps set some of her fears aside to let me really grow and figure out uh, where I could do the most good in the world. And I, as a parent, I know that's a difficult thing to do. <laughs> also, she must have been, I, I, I was quite, um, I hadn't realized that your father had died shortly before your 16th birthday. And that um, that closeness with your mum and and that strength um, must at a very important time in your life as well when you're sort of deciding what do I do and where do I go. Um, that's when you see people at their their worst and their best. Yes, and I, I think I was really fortunate to um, to witness. Uh, my mom as a parent, as, you know, as a a guardian, you know, all of, all of that that goes into parenthood, I guess, you know, at at her best, Um, just, I I think about it. I, you know, I don't know, three young girls, you know, your husband dies and then one of them wants to go off and pursue something pretty immediately that is associated in some way with how that happened to him, you know, flying, aviation. I can't imagine being able to um, support that. But her example, you know, by allowing that with me, supporting that with me, is what gives me hope that I can do that same thing with my son, you know, if when that that challenge comes my way too. Astronaut Nicole Stotts, her book is called Back to Earth. And this is a very Radio 2 type link here. Let me do this again. Her book is called Back to Earth. And we have a book coming out. It's from the team behind our other yeah, space yeah. podcast. So ignore what all those rave things we were saying about her book. Her book. Like, like, you can buy two. You can buy more than now. one book. This is all about you us Buy now. her book. It, it, pre-order. And, and we were being book. genuine about it. It is great. It is really good. No, is no, 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 no. Honestly, it's really good. Um, anyway, our book. Uh-huh. Yeah. Another nice sound effect there. Yep. <laughs> it's from the team behind our other space podcast, the Supermassive Podcast, which we make for the Royal Astronomical Society. It is called the Year in Space Annual from the Supermassive Podcast. 
But because it's the team behind it that have written it, both of us are writers in this, along with the presenters, Becky Smethurst and Izzy Clark. Um, and other and Robert Massey uh, from Robert the Royal Astronomical Massey, Society. It's and, really good. And Sarah Wilde. Sarah Wilde. It's a, a, a really, good, really good list of so. really good list of authors. It's published in October. You can pre-order it now uh, from Amazon at a discounted price. It's quite a substantial discount. Now I'm not sure whether uh, having a discount on Amazon means it's a good thing <laughs> or it means that no one has pre-ordered. Well, it. I never knew this with yeah. the Wally book, and you have to be really careful that you don't get obsessed about it because otherwise. And I thought it was just me. And then because I follow different authors on Twitter, you realise, no, it's everyone. If whoever has a book out, they can't help it. And they keep saying, oh, I've gone up. I've gone up four places, you know, or I've number, gone up a hundred, number, number 432. Well, that's the thing, how quickly Amazon. it can go. Literally, a couple of people will buy your book and you'll go from 15,000 to four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's all uh, smoke and mirrors, but uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, you so can pre-order it. it on, I've seen the early spreads for it and it looks gorgeous. Um, it is going to be in all bookshops from October. But it, it looks lovely. And I've really enjoyed researching for one of the specific articles I've written about. So I think people will get new information and stuff in a really readable, quirky, fun way. Well, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's the Space Boffins podcast. I, like, we could have plug. been describing us, really, couldn't we? <laughs> what, what? Quirky. Quirky, fun. Fun. Glamorous. Uh, gla- uh, <laughs> Well, that's clearly not true. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, listen to some of our other podcasts. They're great. I'm depressed now. I'm not <laughs> yeah, we'll be back next month and I will make an effort with my clothes. But the great thing about doing a podcast is that no one can see the fact that I'm in a pair of, pair of shorts and um, shoes that probably I should have worn socks with. And us being in a little confined studio space, <laughs> it's not a good idea on a warm day, is it, Rich? Sorry about that. Thanks for listening. Hey, app marketers, how's the ROI of your app? At Adjust, we'll help you automate, analyze, and optimize all your marketing campaigns. In one platform, you can identify your best users, protect your campaigns from fraud, and track in-app interactions to monitor retention, LTV, and more. Request your demo at adjust.com and try our mobile analytics platform for free. Grow now.